Hi, this is Steve Poor, and you're listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. As buyers of legal services, NL's counsel are in a powerful position when it comes to legal industry innovation. Today's guest, Kristen Cook, has used that position to do remarkable things as Vice President and Deputy General Counsel at 7-Eleven. Kristen has been at the forefront of transforming how legal services are procured, how services are delivered back to the organization, and how you can use lean to improve legal operations. Her work has been recognized across the industry, including two ACC Value Champion Awards, which recognize how value is enhanced through the use of people, processes, technology, and data innovation. In today's conversation, we cover a variety of topics, including how Lean Six Sigma shaped her career and inspired her approach to legal operations, and how Kristen plans on integrating lessons of COVID to create a cutting edge legal department of the future. I hope you enjoy today's conversation as much as I did. Kristen, thank you very much for joining. It's great to have you on the show. Thanks, Stephen. I'm excited to be on the show as well. Kristen, you've been at the forefront of thinking differently about the acquisition and procurement of legal services, the delivery of legal services, how you relate to your clients. You and the team down there at 7-Eleven, you've got a couple of ACC Value Champion Awards in 2020 and 2018. You've been recognized for some incredibly innovative work that you're doing, and I want to spend time talking about some of those things. But talk to me first a little bit about your personal journey, your professional journey. How did you come to be one of the more creative, innovative lawyers, whether in-house or outside lawyers? Where, where did you start? Well, first, thank you for the compliment. I, I hope to live up to the way you describe me. It's really been a couple of things that have brought me along this journey. You know, I went to Baylor Law School, graduated, did the traditional straight to law firm. I tell young attorneys that I never said no to opportunity. You know, I started in litigation, moved to real estate after my first year, was working in real estate when the Great Recession hit, started doing kind of bankruptcy, foreclosures, workouts. And in that time, the former general counsel at 7-Eleven, who's now the chief administrative officer, I was doing some work for his father. I didn't know, had no connection to 7-Eleven, nor did I know the you know former general counsel. I was working for his father at 7-Eleven, but I was doing this in private practice. And the former general counsel calls me and says, hey, we're looking to hire a real estate attorney. This is 2010, again, in the middle of the recession. Do, you know, my father recommended you highly. And I moved to 7-Eleven, again, not looking for a move from, I was enjoying the firm I was at, but ended up moving in-house and started doing real estate work. And it was really exciting because I had gone from, you know, there was not a lot of real estate growth to moving to a company where there was, you know, three, 400 new stores opening in the, a year in the middle of kind of a drought on everything else. And so come to 7-Eleven and, you know, had no experience with legal operations. I was not familiar with the term. I was not familiar with the alternative fee arrangements or AFAs. And Lisa Damon, who is a, who I would say a true pioneer in this field and at Cyfarth, Cyfarth was doing part of our real estate work and was a big partner for 7-Eleven. And she started introducing us to this idea of Cyfarth Lean. And we did our first round of law firm convergence and started discussing these concepts of alternative fee arrangements. And at that point, I'd been you know, within the 
in-house for a couple of years, you know, saw the importance of budgets and also saw that there was the natural inclination as you get an hourly rate, you maybe negotiate the discounted fee, but there wasn't a lot of review of the invoices. You know, you just kind of pay if it seems reasonable, right? And we moved forward. And so I started kind of dipping my toe in the, you know, alternative fee arrangement space. And we did our first portfolio, I think in 2014, where we said, okay, we have this large legacy body of work that this firm, we've done no alternative fee arrangements with, but we tried it, started that and it worked really well. And I I should back up and say, we were doing some kind of hybrid alternative fee arrangements on the real estate matters, but it was a little piecemeal and, you know, hard to keep your arms around exactly the different components. And so we we did one with this environmental portfolio and it was really successful. And I started just becoming more and more interested in that. And then this former general counsel recruited me over, says, hey, we need you to move from real estate over to fuel. I moved to fuel, took over the fuel and environmental work. And then in 2017, where I think I really launched the interest in it and with support, you know, I will say also, you have to have the support from your leadership. If your general counsels, deputy general counsels, AGCs, whoever it is, if they're not on board, it's going to be an uphill battle. And I had a lot of support and buy-in from the top levels of the department. And, you know, we said I had worked in real estate, that group for a long time, had backfilled my role and then moved to fuel. And so I had a really good understanding of that body of work, but also understood there was just a lot of volume coming in. And so that really is what launched, you know, working with Cyfar, completely refiguring real estate and ultimately led to our 2018 ACC Value Champion Award. And so I'll pause with that because I think there's you know a lot we can unpack with it, the Value Champion. But I think that was really what started pushing me is seeing these opportunities. And then I think it's a snowball effect of, I had no formal training in this, but I had an interest in it and focused on taking these baby steps. And then as it works, you think, okay, what's next? What's next? And then it gets maybe a little more complex but that's, you know, launched me into where, you know, fast forward now to 2021, what started my journey in the legal operations and alternative arrangement world. That's a fascinating journey. When you moved from being in private practice to being in-house, were there things you'd learned in private practice that were applicable apart from substantive legal knowledge that were applicable to how you were expected to deliver services in-house? Conversely, were there things you had to unlearn as you made that transition? That's a great question. I don't think I've actually uh, been asked this directly. So I will say I was a fifth-year attorney moving in-house. 7-Eleven legal department is historically very lean. I was the first female associate or, you know, female attorney they'd hired in the department in a number of years and also about 10 years younger than the next oldest attorney at the time I started. And so everyone really kind of owned their own business groups at that time. And so there was a little bit of, you know, what do you do with this person? You know, one of my biggest changes that I remember that I now try to pass on to people transitioning from a law firm to in-house was one, you know, I was used to a lot more supervision because you had a partner, you know, that like looked over kind of everything I was doing. And in in-house, I had a lot more autonomy. I, there was help if I needed it, but there was also so much demand that it was like, you need to have the discretion to know when to raise the red flag, right? You need to know when we need to escalate this. But if it's sending out a simple, you know, in a real estate and a stopple certificate or a um, looking at a simple lease amendment, you don't come ask for 
you know, approval, which is different from the law firm model. And they also tell people that, especially, you know, how 7-Eleven is, we have almost 15,000 properties currently throughout the U.S. and Canada. I think there's maybe around 10,000 or so when I started. The volume is really intense. And so coming from a law firm, I think one of the biggest mindset mentalities, after you first stop doing the happy dance about not billing, you know, that's, always, that's the most <laughs> obvious one. You know, once yes. you get over the, like, I'm no longer billing my time, you have to get used to the comfortable with um, the idea that you're not, you know, in a law firm, you were expected to have a very clean file and to be able to know start to finish if it's your deal. You know, I'll give the example of a real estate deal. You know, from start to finish, like you're responsible from, you know, the letter of intent to the closing of all the details. And here, how we operate, it's much more issue spotting. So it's, I don't have to be the expert on all these different issues, but I need to be able to quickly issue spot. Do I need to bring in another department? Do I need to bring in another colleague in the legal department? Is this an issue that I need to get outside counsel that has expertise to look at this requirement in a specific geographical area? And so, you know, I think that's a big mindset from you're going to have to let go of a little bit of the perfectionism or the maybe the control feeling of knowing a lot about all of your deals and moving more to like quickly issue spotting is the first thing I tell, you know, new people transitioning. And the second one I tell is in a law firm, the law department is making the money. That's the revenue of the business. When you move in house, we become the cost center. And so there's a good relationship with the business, but we're not the core business generating the money. And so I think sometimes, you know, understanding, it takes a little bit of a mindset flip. You have to switch your mindset to understand that we don't call all the shots. You know, we're here to support the business and therefore we need to figure out how we advise them on risk and how we advise them on risk tolerance. And this is an issue, but maybe we get comfortable with it. And that, you know, is another big switch from going outside to in-house is you stop maybe knowing the file as much. And then you also have to figure out what the tolerance is because the outside firm is paid to say, here are the really problematic things. And then your job is to help get where are we comfortable in doing that? You know, navigating the ambiguity of what's an acceptable risk versus one that we really can't go forward as presented. How do you learn that risk tolerance within a corporation? Because you've got various stakeholders, I presume, and various business units. I presume it's just by talking to your stakeholders, your clients, and trying to understand because that's a hard mindset shift, I would think, to make. It is. It is a hard mindset shift. And I think people that struggle the most moving outside to inside or have the most contentious relationship with their business units have not made that shift because I think it's incredibly important because if the business trusts you to raise the red flag when it really needs to be raised, then when you finally say this is really, really a big issue and they trust you, then they will take it as you're not just saying no for the sake of being no. Everything's not a no, but that you're taking this position because there really is a reason for it that's beyond what we're comfortable with. It's a, you know, I call it the judgment gene. I mean, it's, I think in some more heavily regulated industries, you know, I have friends that are in-house and banking industries, for example, I think a lot of the judgment is taken out because they have a much more robust processes in place and procedures and they have to be, right? They're so heavily regulated that they can't have a, a miss. Retail runs much more leanly across the board. And so it is a little bit of, I think in addition to raising the issue, okay, so now I've spotted the issue 
you bring it to the business. If the level you bring it to says, it's okay, I'll take that risk. I'm not concerned moving forward. I think one thing, you know, I try to coach newer members on the team is then the next part of being in house counsel is can that person make the call, right? Does that business person have the appropriate authority level for the risk we're talking about? And so you don't want to undermine that relationship, but at the same time, it's almost, you know, can you quantify the risk into like a monetary amount that you could look at a delegation of authority? Or is it just one where you're like, this has, you know, a lot of concern. I understand this person's okay with it, but we probably need to take it to the next level to make sure their boss or, you know, their manager is aligned as well, or maybe it's even the highest level because, you know, it's also the balance of really knowing the company, which takes time, but is this person may say it's fine, but do they really have authority and are they going to be okay if this blows up that they were the right person to make that decision? I've I've always wondered about that because of, of the difficulty of mind shift. It's easy as easy is perhaps an unfair term, <laughs> right? But, but but from a outside lawyer perspective, identifying the risks because you don't have to take business actions based on them is a different, such a different mindset than having to work your clients through so they're not thinking that you're the department of no. Yes, uh, exactly. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about the environment because you alluded to this before. I want to unpack the value challenges and some of the specific work you've been doing, but you alluded to the support of leadership, which I agree with you is absolutely critical to foster a innovative, creative environment to allow for different ways of thinking about problem solving. Was this something that you found when you came into the department? Was it something that evolved with you? Is it an attitude that sort of was based on some early success and, and, and grew with you? How did you gain that support of your leadership for some of the different ways you found to solve these problems? I would say that it's definitely incremental. One of the things I've learned, you know, through the training, the legal ops training or the Lean Six Sigma training is the idea of the quick win and the low hanging fruit. And so I think it's definitely building that trust with the business because the business is impacted potentially by these changes as well, right? And so especially right. the bigger the change. And so can we get credibility that the changes we're making are going to be positive? The more you can do smaller quick wins and start gaining that trust. I think, you know, I've learned that it again has that snowball effect of once you get over the cultural shift and the change management issues that are so time consuming with any change in the first initial tranche of work, and no matter how big or small the project it is, once you get that trust going with the business or is it your leadership in the department, then it gets so much easier. You know, the change resistance is so much smaller going forward, but you have to win and you have to do it well. And I think you know, I, I'm thinking about some of the change management, the biggest one being the first time and how many things I learned. And I learned through trial and error, I can look back and see is I remember when we did this big switch in 2017. And, and I think we'll talk about it for the value champion. But in short, we were doing a very significant shift and what firm was doing all of the real estate work and Real estate development work is a huge growth engine. It's, you know, new stores, single site openings. And I had all this data and I was presenting, presenting and going through all this. And I remember the business person at the time, uh, the head of development saying, okay, cut to the chase. Like, where are we going? Just tell me the answer. You know, and I, and I think that's another lesson I tell the, you know, new people coming in is the lead with the bottom line, you know, up front. And, you know, especially like it's a law firm, 
the business has no time for minutia and details. Lawyers love minutia and details. And so it's, you know, it's this, okay, that was an error. I've learned my way. You know, you lead with the bottom line. Here's what we're doing. And here's the support to the extent you want to know why. But this is how it's going to impact you. And it's the same, you know, in the communications with the business. It's like bottom line is we're okay moving forward. Bottom line is we're not, we're concerned moving forward for these two issues, you know, that we've highlighted for you kind of back on those risk, you know, those risk discussions. But I think, you know, that is all kind of played into this overall journey. Yeah, I'm sitting here sort of inwardly chuckling about the uh, lead with the bottom line. I it used to drive me crazy back when I had management responsibility for people not cutting to the chase. Yes. And these kind of things. And lawyers love to be long-winded. They're so proud of their analytical structure <laughs> that gets them to the answer. They. I know. It's not uh, the rule we learned in law school on how to do the memo. You know, it was like, you go through the rule first and then you apply it, you know, all those. And this is not how the business works. And then the more responsibility you get, you see, okay, what do you need me to do? And what are the three issues I should be concerned about? But when it's your world and all you're doing, you're like, this case is the biggest case ever. And I have all these millions of details about it. And it's like, no, 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 stop that. I will give a plug for the, there's a Harvard Business Review article called how to craft an email with military style precision. And I share that with my teams and kind of recirculate it every couple of years. But it's like how to capture an email with like the clear bottom line, enough details to get the results and like to get action. And I try to get my team to use that because it just streamlines. And I think it's very effective on getting responses because everyone's inundated with so many emails. And then you just read the email forward with like 20 different emails. You have no idea why this is sent to you. You're thinking, do you need me to do something? Is there an action item? You know, so that's another, and I'm digressing from how the leadership got buy-in, but, you know, I guess another one I would say moving from the law firm is to how, or just for anyone like starting their career or looking to improve, this is one that I would add in. I mean, we've talked a little bit about getting involved with Lisa and, and getting connected with what's now, it wasn't known at the time, but I think is now known as legal ops. I don't think it was known no, by that at the time. Yeah, this I don't was, think right there. This is pre before it was cool. Exactly. <laughs> it's not everybody whose curiosity would be piqued by these concepts. And I know that from living through it. What do you think it was about your background or your approach to the business that made you the exception here, that made you so curious about how you could find a different and, and hopefully better way to deliver services to your clients. I was telling someone today, joking um, with a new team member on our legal department, that I can embrace that I really love efficiencies and processes, and it's just how I'm wired. And so I think I really enjoy just organizational structure and the sense of getting, you know, how can we streamline things? And so when I first came over in 2010, had overseeing law firms on real estate growth and then also taking at the time what we now call existing store work, but it's really like once the store's opened, transitioned, you know, supporting that team and, you know, had disputes and condemnations, just kind of this plethora of real estate issues that it all impacted the real estate, but it really divided up into different groups. So I remember coming in and then just thinking, you know, every time I need to do a contract, I don't even have a sales contract form. I have to dig around and find the most recent draft and then hope I haven't made too many changes that I'm missing or, you know, redline it to make sure there's 
um, not something I negotiated out. And so I started kind of just working from a process place and how do I keep the ball moving? Started just working toward a form library, the first steps of a real estate form library of the work. And then I think I was at the same time seeing this fragmented legal response in real estate where it was a would spend a significant amount of time with two different firms doing the same work, but it just depended if you happened to be in California, there was a different firm than the one that happened to be in New York. And it didn't necessarily make sense to me. There seemed to be a lot of time kind of navigating those relationships of making sure the forms are consistent for that type of work, for the growth work. And so I think, you know, once I started seeing There's a certain amount of just, that's my personality, wanting to start putting the processes together and then combining that with, you know, starting to see Lisa uh, at that point, Cyfarth had launched, Cyfarth Lean. I agree with you, it was not called Legal Ops. And I remember actually the first time I heard the legal operations and I think I misinterpreted what it was. But then it started, you know, it was like, oh, this is catching on. That's probably about the 2017 time period is maybe the first time I heard it, 2018. But anyway, I just started thinking, okay, well, I have these processes for the internal work. Can I start applying these same kind of discipline to the, you know, the outside firms in managing to budget with the the firms we're using? You talked jokingly about one of the aspects of moving in-house was no longer having to bill your time. Does the fact that now you're not operating, you're not being valued by how much time you bill, did that play into this desire for efficiency and effectiveness because you're not being rewarded by putting in more hours on a particular matter? It's your time. The value of it is based on how you want to contribute to the organization and your own personal time. Was that a component that helped grow this attitude? That's a great question. I don't think that was, but I think playing off of what the comment about not billing time, I think as I evolved in the legal operations and started seeing more and also getting you know, to have more visibility to, you know, part of when we did the 2017 restructure was we started with just understanding the legal spend, you know, and I said, you do the snowball, like the baby steps, but before I could even say, let's tackle the real estate and make this case for how we restructure it, I had to first understand what we were spending. So I tell people and anyone on this journey, if you're starting out, I always say, one, you need to get an e-billing system. And two, you need to understand your spend and data and figure out what you're doing consistently year over year and what's the biggest spend because that's where you need to probably focus your time. Now, maybe it's not where you start. You don't want to jump in too much and tackle too many things to upset the balance you have in place, but there's clearly some opportunities there. But I think what I see going back to your question about the uh, not billing your time, what I see as a real pain point for in-house legal departments is in a law firm, you can quantify what you do day to day because you bill your time. So you're going to have how many hours you built this month and then what the receivable was, you know, how much did they actually collect and how much is written off, right? So you can at any given time have a very clear metrics that any law firm is going to understand and they're not open to dispute. And so as they became more and more involved in, you know, kind of understanding the spend of the departments or, or how work was being allocated, I would see people say, oh, we need to get a new headcount. And then you say, why? You know, the management's always like, why do you need another person? Everyone always wants another person. Well, we're really, really busy. Okay, everybody's really busy. Like that doesn't translate. And so I think where I saw the not billing time is I really work on establishing and continually looking to develop with, again, with the leadership, like what our metrics are. And so those metrics are to me how you 
replace the value that you're showing to by not billing time, right? The intent is to capture the same thing. And so you don't want to capture every time you send an email or every one-off dispute, but it will take an example of if I can show that we've handled 300 real estate contracts this year, but last year we did 200 and we haven't had that incremental headcount, and then I can go back and as the metrics get developed out, I can start you know, at a high level saying, okay, we have X number of contracts in this category. I can then go, you know, I've tried to, depending on the maturity of our model and the metrics, because it's kind of a little bit category, but maturity within that category of work. So I'll take real estate, for example. We can say, here's how many, what we call new store contracts there are this year. And then we can go into a subcategory of here are the leases versus purchase contracts. And here's how many were terminated. This is how many a store opened. We go to the next category for stores that are open. We did X number of contracts and this many were sales contract leases, estoppels, easements, you know, amendments, whatever it is. But I think adding that value of showing a combination of legal spend by council, internal resources, and then year-over-year incremental volume is what I have found to be the best way to quantify in a way the business understands the value. And that's how I've had the most success in making compelling cases about either adding headcount and or saying, why are you guys spending so much in this category of work? Why is it going crazy? You say, oh, let me pull up my chart. You know, here's how many contracts we were doing three years ago, we've doubled in pace. We haven't added any resources. Therefore, we're using more outside counsel. And I find that, you know, the finance team and the planning team are very receptive to that because they don't want to hear about I'm busy or I had a big project, but I can't really remember what it was in April last year that, you know, caused the fees to rise or this is complex. I mean, there's so many just kind of excuses they don't care about. And Quantifying that into a quick graph, one or two pages in a presentation gets you a lot of favor with the business and backs off when you start getting the questions about what you're doing. And I think is the in-house for us, at least, has been the in-house equivalent of replacing the billable hour that you would see in a firm showing value. It's a fascinating observation to me because the business side of businesses has been working on data and explaining their value to management always for, for a long time. Yes. And historically, lawyers, outside lawyers and law firms and legal departments have not grasped the importance of the data and the data explanation and the value articulation in the way you've just described it. Because you're now speaking the business's language, language which is great. We've sort of talked a little bit on the edges around 2017 and the restructuring. What was the problem you were trying to solve and how did you go about identifying that problem? So 2017, I had moved to the fuel business. We had had a backfill. The company was growing and I just saw, I think I was uniquely positioned because I had done that role for a number of years and really saw how the time was spent. And I started with pulling the data, spending a lot of time. You know, at that point, we had two different firms doing real estate work the growth work. And I first started with just asking the firms to send us information about the fees because part of the hybrid AFA was that it only covered up until this lease was signed or the sales contract was signed, but there was no, or purchase contract, but there was no, the period and the contingency period was outside the scope of the AFA. And so on its face, I first started asking the law firms, you know, hey, 
let me see your spend. And then I have an awesome paralegal. And we spent so much time trying to make it apples to apples comparison. Because what we found was one, we're not accountants, we don't pretend to be, but spending the time to really start understanding the trends and digging into those numbers allowed us to see that while one firm had cheaper hourly rates and had a cheaper alternative fee structure to get the lease to signing or the you know deal to execution. In the end, they had a lot more costs on the back end because there was more amendments and contingencies and different things. And the firm that was had more expensive hourly rates and had a higher fee to getting executed was actually ultimately cheaper on a deal by deal comparison because they had less time on the back end outside of the AFA. So that was kind of an aha moment. And then in that same time, we just implemented e-billing in 2013, I'm trying to think. And so uh, we started having you know, the data. We could get several years of data at this point to start seeing the trends. And so I'm looking at this and I'm saying, okay, on its face, this one firm looks cheaper because its hourly rate is cheaper and its AFA structure is cheaper, but it's not really cheaper by about anywhere from five to $8,000 per deal because of the other work. And maybe that's justified or not, but it's kind of calling foul on this belief that hourly rate being cheaper, therefore means the work is cheaper because that's, that's just not the case, right? So, right. and then second, we went back and looked at all the real estate work and it's like, we're also spending X number of dollars per year on these various buckets of work being what we call existing store work, like once the store is opened and we have condemnations and disputes. And so we were in a hiring freeze, but I put the presentation together and had the buy-in again from the now general counsel and the former general counsel and said, you know, here's the proposal. Let's do a, a request for proposal RFP to five firms for this new store body of work, see who, what people can come back with. And then two, let's bring in two additional headcounts. So let's start making people, we have enough work year over year to see that we can save this amount of money per year if we bring it in-house. And so we were able to go to the CFO and say, we can commit that by hiring an in-house person, we're going to save you a minimum of, you know, X hundreds of thousands of dollars a year and do it for both cases, you know, both positions, get approval. And then did the RFP. What I assume that data accumulation and that data analysis was the key tool with your CFO and your your law department management that because again, yes. going back to that's the language they speak. A hundred percent. It is a hundred percent saying if we do X, we will save Y and then verifying, right? Mm -hmm. And you know, I think when I also speak at ACC, speak at different opportunities, I try to tell people that don't, you know, I think people are caught in this trend of like, oh, I want to do AI, I'm going to put bots in, or I'm going to put in this like really crazy, complicated, expensive contract lifecycle management tool. And I'm not saying there's not a place for that. And that's not where we're heading. But for most departments, what I see is starting with the simplicity of like, what are you spending? Can you put anything on a portfolio to start managing that spend? Can you start consolidating? Can you, there's so many different ways, you know, are the things you could bring in house that would be cheaper and it makes sense to have a case because it's sustainable, you know, just start with the basics of looking at that data. And then that data makes a compelling case to the CFO about where you're going to save money. And then on top of that, when you come back and validate it and say, not only is it saved what we thought it would, it's actually saved more because this is the next, you know, this is incremental contract growth. And this is what we brought in house. They see the value, start having the credibility to go forward with additional projects. And so 
we were able to get focusing again on the data and the headcount. We were able to bring in two people um, at the time we, you know, added, we had four head for paralegals that actually moved from another department, you know, reporting under the transactional real estate council. And then we're able to develop processes and efficiencies, you know, really start building out a maturity model on how we handle that work. And again, continue to have the credibility because one, they've seen it be successful in both the legal department and the real estate team, the business team likes it. And third, the CFO. And so you combine, you know, the CFO, you prove it out through the metrics, the real estate team, you get it proved out through the feedback and the buy-in and the support you have from them. And then you're, you know, able to, I think at one point, one of our crowning moments in all of this was the general counsel now was told by the CFO, do you have any more of those we can do? You know, <laughs> what are some other ideas, like ways you can save money? Because we're speaking his language. We're thoughtful about the cost of the company. Our number one focus is getting the work done well, but we also are stewards of the business. And what can we do to show the business that we're trying to be efficient, to keep the work turned and give quality legal services, but also not just be a blank check because the work's just flowing in. And maybe also not having consistency because you don't have order in the firms you're retaining and the thoughts you're, you know, in the, the approach to the work. Also implicit in all that, it goes back to a point we talked about earlier, is a deep understanding of risk tolerances. You talk about quality of work and nobody's talking about taking inordinate risks. But as you think about process improvement and process analytics and data around it, I assume risk tolerance has to work in, in there a little bit as well. And that requires a deep understanding of the company and the company's willingness to accept certain levels of risk. Yes, I completely agree. I think, you know, that's back to, um, and I think that also is implicit in finding what is the right work back to, you can apply this at so many levels, but it's kind of the concept of the right people doing the right job. And so that can be applied at both a partner associate paralegal level versus in-house doing it that way. You can also apply that for there may be bed the farm cases where you need, as a legal department, we need to advise and the business expects we have the premier person in whatever this area is. And at that point, we're not worried about what's our portfolio and how much can we negotiate down the fees because the risk is so high or there's, you know, the impact could be so detrimental to the company that money is not the driving discussion when you're hiring this person. But at the same time, that attorney or firm may not and are not appropriate for maybe lower level run-of-the-mill things that have to be handled, but could be handled in a more cost-effective way. And so it's back to, you know, I call it the work stream or demand, you know, is, are the right people doing the right jobs? Like, are we sourcing the appropriate levels of risk to the jobs they're assigned to do? If a paralegal misses an estoppel, is there a ton of risk to us? Eh, I mean, there's a, some risk. We could be you know, have a waiver claim or bound by some representation, but it's a low enough risk that we're comfortable moving forward under the, you know, process that we put in place. But if there's some, you know, huge class action that has an impact, you know, to the entire way the business is done, then that's where maybe the law firm we would use for run-of-the-mill litigation is not probably the same law firm we would use for that massive class action. Right. We're about out of time. So one last question. You guys have had such an incredible sequence of innovative approaches to various problems. Has the pandemic had an impact on how you think about the delivery of legal services, either from your outside service providers or internally? And if so, what has that been? Or has it been nothing as business as usual? I don't mean it that way. But have you continued your momentum despite the pandemic? 
I think two things. I'll give one example from March 2020. We were in the process and it had been kind of fits and starts about getting DocuSign implemented for all the real estate paper. And there's a lot of the processes. And when COVID hit and people were no longer in the office, we were very heavy and kind of a clunky, what I would call a clunky delivery model on getting things signed because it went back and forth between floors. We expedited the DocuSign, which again, to me is an example, like a small thing that seems simple enough but there's always levels of nuance in it to do it well. So we expedited putting that over a several month period, but put that in real estate. And then that's something that'll come out of COVID. And is there more hybrid work of, you know, work everywhere that that has really been a positive that we've implemented is directly coming out of COVID. We were trying to do it anyway, but it was always kind of one of those things that got bumped down. And then we acquired Speedway, the company did in May. And I will say that has also been, we had, a, I would say, a lull because of COVID and then in the middle of a massive acquisition that we you know, couldn't focus on what are we going to do better. But now since we've closed and we're integrating with another law department, and it's really been exciting for me because it is a catalyst to, and this is not COVID per se, but this is the integration of two large companies we have to look at everything now. What are best practices we've got from both departments? What are things that we want to be when we come out as this holistic, collaborative, one law department? What are things that we can do to adopt the best of all? And so will we go through another law firm convergence? Will we go through another you know, work stream allocation and who's doing what? And all these things are exciting and part of, you know, kind of the catalyst for making us go back. It'll be, you know, almost 10 years. So it's the right time. It's the, okay, let's not get complacent. And what can we do going forward to make us a cutting edge legal department on the other side of this? Well, you guys have been uh, on that path for a decent amount of time. It'll be fun to watch the continued cool things you're going to do. Kristen, thank you so much for joining us today. I've really enjoyed our conversation. Well, thank you, Stephen. I've had a great time too. I think, I hope you can hear my passion coming through this because I really, I feel like I could talk to you all day and I'm so honored to be included and look forward to talking to you again in the future. Thanks for listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. Be sure to visit thepioneerpodcast.com for show notes and more episodes. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platform.